Well, grab your Bible, find your way to the book of James. We are in chapter 3. When we started, I told you that the letter from James has been referred to as a punch in the throat. When we got to chapter 2, I called it a punch in the gut, right? I suppose that uh, in chapter 3, you could say that James is going to punch us dead in the mouth, right? That's chapter 3. Because it's here in chapter 3 that James addresses the believer's tongue, right? There it is. There's a big fat tongue. We got a whole new, whole new image for just this one special message. Uh, this isn't the first time, however, that James addresses the tongue. He does it, interestingly enough, in every chapter of the letter. Five chapters, he mentions it in each one. It is no small thing. No pun intended. But it's here in chapter 3 that he is going to, make no mistake, hit it the hardest. Okay? Uh, I don't want to, I could just, uh, well, let me put it this way. I don't even have to preach this passage. I don't even have to read this passage necessarily. You know what it's about. I mean, you could just tell from right there, you know what I'm going to say for the next few minutes, right? I mean, you've heard this message before. James may give it to you in a unique way. He may unpack it uh, differently maybe than you've heard it before. But essentially, we get it, right? Our tongues are terrorists. Docile here for a moment, but they can't be trusted because all of a sudden they can just explode on someone. Yeah? Some of the earliest lessons you can remember from your childhood are about this very text. If you think about it. Finish these statements. If you don't have anything nice to say... Don't say anything at all. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words or names will never hurt me. I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever. Something like that. I get that one confused, right? Yeah. At a very early age, right? At a very early age, we start teaching our kids these lessons, even if they are lies. Right? Because think about it. I mean, those are lies. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. They, in fact do hurt because words are very hurtful. We are glue in that sense when it comes to the words that are thrown at us. Those harsh words don't bounce. They very often, unfortunately, stick. But there's something about us that that we want to like convince even our kids that it it shouldn't affect us. But it does. It affects us deeply. I mean, even into our adulthood, we don't actually believe those things. Uh, in all the counseling that I do, no matter what kind of counseling it is, uh, inevitably, if there's been conflict, it usually ends up he said this or she said that. And then one or the other is having a hard time getting over it. Words, they stick. They don't just bounce off. James is going to say that in the life of the one who has been born again, this quote ought not be. But he's going to say it all too often is true that our tongue is unruly. Uh, in verse one, he's going to start at the top. In the Jewish culture, a teacher was a position of high esteem. You got to understand this. It's actually part of their code that you regard your teacher higher than your parent. And a parent is no small thing in Hebrew culture. Okay, a, a parent, uh, your elder in that sense was a big deal for a young Jewish boy or girl. Okay. But in their in their code of conduct, as it were, a rabbi or a teacher was actually elevated above your parents. 
And it's actually spelled out for them with different scenarios. And one of them is this. Check this out. If um, if mom or dad uh, and your rabbi get nabbed and there is ransom required for them, but you only have enough to ransom one, who are you picking? You're picking the teacher. Sorry, mom. Right. And moms across the world right now are saying, after all I've done for you, I carried you nine months. You have no idea what I've been through, right? That's, that's the collective echo of everyone who's been a mom, right? Why in the world would you choose a rabbi? Here was their thinking. These aren't my words. These are, these are Hebrew tradition words. It's, it's, it's figured that here's how it works. Your mom may have brought you into this world, but your spiritual teacher, so to speak, he's the only one that can guide you into the next life. So this position of teacher that he's going to address in this first verse, it's of high esteem, And so you naturally had guys jockeying for this position. You naturally had guys trying to uh, secure this esteemed position. But James is going to start with some sobering words. Watch chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers. It's 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 a strong warning. My brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment or condemnation. You say, what does a teacher have to do with the tongue? The answer is the teacher uses his or her tongue professionally, so to speak. I mean, that's their job. That's what they that's what they do. They spouting off at the mouth is is their their livelihood. It's what they spend their time doing. It's what they spend their profession doing intentionally, not even by accident. They use words on purpose to lead, to guide, to direct, to advise to counsel, to move into godly ways, to instruct. Here's James's point in the first verse. We have a great weight of responsibility for our words, especially those who attempt to lead with their words, especially those who attempt to advise or counsel or instruct intentionally with their words, because we kind of call those people teachers, right? If you're going to give me advice on which way to go, you're, you're teaching me. All right. Um, Now, I don't believe that this necessarily only refers to the office of teaching like this doesn't just apply to me, the guy who stands up here and speaks from the pulpit. This isn't just about the pastor. Okay, I think that it means that, but it also includes any who would give advice, any who would give counsel, especially uh, in an attempt to give spiritual or godly wisdom or counsel or instruction or look at a situation and say, I think this. It's the picture of a magistrate evaluating a situation. And now I'm going to offer you my word of counsel. And he says, man, that let's just start there at the top. That guy better be extremely cautious because what I'm about to tell you is going to help you to understand that words are extremely powerful and dangerous, no matter how small they may seem. And so he starts right there at the top. Let me give you a proverb. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is regarded as smart. Isn't that good? Even a fool, when he keeps his mouth shut, looks really, really smart. Great wisdom for us. Verse 2. He's sure to include all of us so that you know this is not just about me or official teachers. For we who? What does it say? For we all stumble in 
many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. There's a tone of all inclusiveness throughout this whole passage. I don't want you to miss that. The truth is none of us escape from this lesson. None of us can skirt this passage and say, you know what, this week in preaching, it's not for me. It's as if James just comes down after all the hammering he's been doing. He says, listen, this is for all of us. I mean, we all stumble in various ways. We all have that thing that trips us up. And especially, you know, in the context of our tongue, we're all involved here. It's not just about the teacher and the office, if that's where you put that category. It's about any of us because we all use words and they're stronger than we may sometimes believe they are. We know they're stronger, but we don't always act as if they're stronger. We're all in need because we're going to see that defeating this enemy is virtually impossible on our own. It's almost as if James being sarcastic in verse two. Listen to it again. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, and it's an if, but it probably is never going to happen if. Okay. If anybody could actually pull that off is the tone, I think. If anybody could actually control this one member of their body, the truth is They're probably perfect, and it's the idea of being mature he used in in chapter 1. It's like the goal. It's like you're you're able to master your whole domain, okay? If you can master this small thing, then you've got it all licked. And I think he's got a little tone of sarcasm there because he already indicates that we we're going to struggle with this. Now, in verse 3 and 4, he gives us two illustrations to that point. Watch this. That this small thing can control something unbelievably powerful. Watch this. Verse 3 and 4. Now, if we put bits into a horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Illustration number one. Illustration number two. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder whenever the inclination of the pilot desires. In verse 3, it's like putting a bit. Our tongue, uh, this idea that it is uh, able to control the whole body. If you can master this, you can master the whole deal. He illustrates it by saying it's like putting a bit in a horse's mouth. I grew up uh, with a horse. My mom had a horse. It wasn't really my horse. I kind of stayed away from it. I fed it every now and then. But we had a horse. His name was Rusty. He was kind of cool. The one thing I knew about Rusty was uh, I, I didn't really want to mess with Rusty. I mean, horses are kind of docile and they're cool pets and all like that. But when you looked at this dude, I mean, his muscles were like, boom. I mean, you could just see there's like no body fat on a horse. You ever looked at the muscularity of a horse? It's amazing. And I instinctively just knew that this, this guy could do whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it. All right. I mean, uh, horses can weigh up, I think to like 2000 Pounds, they can run a quarter mile, that's one lap around a track, in like 20-something seconds. It's a very powerful animal. But when you put a bit in its mouth and you put the reins back around its head, you can set a two-year-old on there, and the slightest little pull will direct that powerful beast. That's his first illustration. He says, your tongue is kind of like, it's kind of like that. It doesn't take a whole lot to be able to control the whole other deal. In fact, if you can control this, you can control the whole deal. It's like if you can control the bit in a horse's mouth, you have now mastery over this, this awesome animal in all of its power, in all of its speed, in all of its glory. You can control it. That's illustration number one. Illustration number two. Verse four, it's kind of like a rudder 
on a boat. Not just a little boat. I mean, picture like a giant ship. You can have a massive ship, but without that rudder on the back, that small instrument, the ship becomes useless. Um, some of you, if you're history buffs, you may, you may know of the uh, battleship Bismarck. You ever heard of the battleship Bismarck? World War II, it was a German, uh, German uh, battleship. It was the largest of its time. It was, it, it was the premier battleship. It was uh, said to be unsinkable, uncatchable. It was fast, it was powerful, and it was agile. Okay? Uh, it got out in the heat of the battle, and it, it, like everyone was chasing the Bismarck, right? And uh, this guy named uh, John Moffat, he dropped uh, a one in a million torpedo shot from his British biplane. Now you know what a biplane is? It's like got the two wings, and it's the guy sitting there, and he's got his kind of head out, and he's like flying like this, and there's a dude maybe back behind him. I mean, that's what we're talking about, like a biplane. I'm not talking about like a jet plane. I'm talking about a biplane. Okay. He dropped a one in a million shot torpedo out of his biplane. He told his story a couple years back. I read it. And he, here's what he said. He said, I'm looking to drop my torpedo at the Bismarck because he's part of the British uh, Air Force now. And Churchill said, sink the Bismarck. And so he's looking to drop this one in a million shot at the Bismarck, hoping to do some sort of damage because they got boats chasing it all around and nobody's really able to do anything. So here's what he does. He's looking out the airplane now, right? No, no guidance system. He's looking out the airplane. And he's getting ready to drop this thing. And his navigator, Goose, who's in the back seat, he's, he's telling him, no, wait, wait, wait. And he says, I don't know why this guy's waiting. So I turn around and I look and he's hanging out of the plane. He said, all I saw was his rear sticking up out of his seat. And so now he's freaking out because he thinks this guy is going to fall out. But what the guy was doing, Goose has got his head stuck out of the plane because he's watching the waves. Now, this is crazy. He says, wait, because there are waves coming. And he knew if he dropped drop the torpedo into a wave, it'd get, it'd get pushed off course. So he's got to find what he called the ditch between the waves. Crazy. And so finally the guy says, okay, drop it. And he drops it. Now, he didn't find out about this until 59 years later. Somehow they were to figure out who actually got the, the kill shot, right? That that torpedo, it hit the Bismarck. Now, it didn't destroy the Bismarck. Here's what it did. It jammed the rudder of the Bismarck. And so now the Bismarck in subsequent days and subsequent battles now was not as agile. It, it, was, it was disabled in the sense that it could not maneuver. And now the British Royal Navy sunk the Bismarck. But who gets the credit? It's that one in a million shot that took out the rudder. That one small thing took down that massive, powerful ship. That's illustration number two from James. That your mouth is this little deal. But if you can master it, it's like mastering your whole universe. It's kind of like putting a bit in this, this massive, powerful horse's mouth and just a little tug of your fingers and it goes where you want it to go. It's like that small rudder on the back of a Bismarck that, that if you take it out, then, then the ship is done. It's dead in the water. The ability to control your tongue is like, is like a bit in a horse's mouth or the rudder of a large ship. You now have control over the whole thing from such a small thing. Now watch this, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts powerful and great things. It may be a small thing, but it is a powerful thing. You know what? Um, you, may not, you may not have heard this before. Maybe some of you have. Your tongue, it said, pound for pound, is the strongest muscle in your body. 
pound per pound, I mean, it's a small deal, so I mean, it can't lift like your biceps can, but pound per pound, proportionately, it is the strongest muscle in your body. And now he's going to call it, in the rest of verse 5, a fire. Watch this. So also, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Um, Growing up in Florida, uh, you could expect the occasional forest fire. And in the uh, 90s, we had our share. Uh, It's a strange thing to go outside and see your neighbor squirting their house with a water hose, right? I mean, it's kind of odd. You're like, dude, really? I mean, you're you're squirting your roof with a water hose. But it, it, in fact, makes a little bit of sense because here's what they're guarding against. The smallest ember that would fly through the air carried by the wind from where the fire is currently landing on your dry house rooftop could set your home ablaze. I remember uh, there was one fire that came, uh, as I remember, within probably a half a mile, if not just hundreds of yards, of our home, like the neighborhood right next to ours. Homes were burning down. And I remember after that, uh, driving down this this certain road, and and there was just the, the forest that was there. It was just gone. It was just burned up. And then hearing on the radio that some Yahoo high school kid had flicked his little ciggy out the window and started the whole thing. Just from a little deal. Your tongue is like a fire. And it's not... It's not that it's this big, massive, combustible thing that's so obvious. It's like it's just this little spark. But the danger of a little spark is in the right scenario and circumstances, it can burn it all down. It can burn it all down. And what was something small has now just napalmed a whole forest. It's the picture James paints of your tongue's power. Let me ask you. Can you in a word do this? Can you in a word, a single word, do this to another person, to another individual? Absolutely. Can you in a single moment with only your words just wipe out another person? You sure can. Can I tell you why? It's because, he's going to say, it is an animal on the loose. Watch this, verse 7. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles, And creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. You name it, it has been tamed, right? You've seen it all. We've got dancing bears. We've got uh, Coco the monkey who does sign language. We've got uh, dogs who ride skateboards. Dogs pretty much do everything now. Uh, Killer whales, they're riding around like, you know, horses. Okay, instructing them, flipping, doing stuff, feeding them out of their mouth, all this stuff, right? Uh, Shark Week last week, am I a Shark Week fan? Yeah, guys swimming around with great whites on their tail, right? James says, you name it, you know, humans, the wildest beast out there, we can tame it. My brother's losing control back here. We may have to, we may have to ask him to leave in a moment. Just so you know, sometimes he likes to make faces at me and cause me to laugh, and he's trying to throw me off every now and then, but I figured I'd just go ahead and let you all... I don't know what was so funny about that. Shark Week? What did I say? Shark Week? Um, our dad... I thought he would laugh at this part. Our dad, no joke, uh, he had a bird, and this bird would sit on his shoulder. And I'm not lying. He taught this thing how to whistle the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And the Marine Corps hymn. 
I mean, it was right on, too. Uh, he had a squirrel. That's a little more odd. He actually had two squirrels at one point. Uh, and, and this one particular squirrel, you could play fetch with it. Okay? Uh, the funny thing with the squirrel was if you showed up at the house and the squirrel was out of its little cage, uh, the squirrel would love to run up and tell you hello on the inside of your pants leg. Now, that's a wild beast. What's a squirrel doing in your house? I don't know. That's just how we grew up. It was weird. But it would do stuff. It'd roll a ball around. He'd feed it off of his shoulder. Um, as amazing as all that is, and, and you've seen cooler things, I'm sure, than singing birds and fetching squirrels. As amazing as all that taming might be, you would think that a man could control such a small thing as his tongue. That's James's point. But we can't seem to, yeah, or our laughter, we can't seem to control the flapping of our tongue. It's good. Here's the point. He's going to say in the next verse, look at this, verse 8, no one can tame the tongue. It is a, what is the word? Restless evil. It is a restless evil. It's worse than any wild animal. Uh, You know what it means to be restless? Check this out. To be restless means you you can't stay still. It, It always wants to be moving. Trivia question. What is the only muscle in the human body not attached at both ends? Pretty easy. That's what we're talking about. The only muscle in the human body not attached at both ends, it is your tongue. All of your muscles are attached at two points of a bone by ligaments so that they can contract and extend. But check this out. Your tongue is, in fact, quite literally loose. Yeah? It's loose at one end and thus flaps around restlessly. It can't stay still. And in verse 8, it's not only a restless evil. What does he say? It's a deadly poison. It's the picture of something that bites or stings, inserting its poison, thus disabling its via, its victim. You get in this picture that James is painting of your, your smallest member? Solomon said it this way, death and life are in the power of your tongue. Wisest man to ever live. Proverb, he who restrains his lips is wise. You know what to do with an animal you can't tame? You know what you got to do? What do you have to do with an animal you can't tame? You have to cage it. All right? (laughs) You got to cage it. So what do you do with this restless, poisonous, venomous evil? One theologian said it this way. This is why God gave me teeth to bar my tongue. Now, you think James is just concerned with your words, church? Or do you think your words have something to say about your faith? Remember our context here. Remember our our theme for the whole book. James is concerned about our faith not being a what? Fraud. That's what we said. The question we use to navigate through this book, is your faith a fraud? He's not just concerned about your words, but our words tell on us. Our tongues tattle on us. They indicate the quality or the reality of the faith inside of us. He's walking through our works to help us determine the reality of our faith. 
uh, in this case, does what comes out of our mouth match what is supposedly in our heart? That's the question James is going after here. Does what comes out of your mouth match what you say is supposedly in your heart, namely your faith in Christ? Verse 9, look at it. With it, he says, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And the inference is they all too often are. James has commands in every passage, and this is the command. Church, it ought not be this way. But it all too often is out of control. Restless, evil, poisonous, deadly, devastating. Don't be fooled by it. It ought not be this way. 11. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Or can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. His point? To say that your speech that your attitude as it reveals itself in your words can be one thing while your faith is another that's completely incongruous. It does not match. It cannot exist together. It doesn't make sense. You can't, you can't go to a water fountain and get sweet and bitter water in the same drink. You can't, you can't, take, you can't take one fruit tree and find another produce on it it doesn't work that way what does this all come from it comes from remember what he said earlier in the book we have been implanted with a seed by the will of god that we might look more like jesus the firstborn among many brethren that is the will of the father that we are changed we are adjusted and so he now he punches us right in the mouth (laughs) as if to say this little guy is the telltale sign Is your faith a fraud? Jesus said this. The mouth speaks that which fills the heart. It's as if your heart will eventually overflow, church. And whatever is in there, it's looking for a crack to find its way out. And your tongue is more than happy to give it its way. Your words will reveal what is in the depths of your heart. Jesus believed it. Is your faith a fraud? Uh, When you go to the doctor, what is the first thing they look at? It is your tongue. In Chinese medicine, they believe that the tongue actually reflects all the diseases of the body. Did you know that? Just by looking at the tongue, you can diagnose many of our diseases. Um, You know the damage you can do, church. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Let me just give you the list. With our tongue, we can curse, gossip, brag, exaggerate, embellish, lie, cover up, manipulate, complain, criticize, lash out, belittle, cut others down, and undeservedly lift ourselves up, all with our own words. And the list could go on, right? I used to believe... Uh, We had this conversation in an elder meeting recently. I used to believe that the greatest indication of one's spiritual maturity was most likely his financial giving, his willingness to give back to God of his stuff. All right. Uh, I I, I have to tell you that that that's probably changed after after sinking into this passage. 
I think if you were to ask James, James, what is the real litmus test for your spiritual maturity? Is there something that outweighs my stuff, my material stuff, my money, my pocketbook, my wallet? Is there something that indicates better, more consistently, the depth of my love for Jesus, the reality of my faith? Is it fraudulent or not? Is there, is there a litmus test that's better than whether or not I trust God with my, my finances? I think James would say, yeah. And I think he would say it's our, it's our tongue. If you can control this little thing, it's like you can master the whole deal. You become what he says is the goal in chapter 1. So here's the question. Are you seeking to bring your tongue in line with your faith? Are you seeking to bring your tongue, your words, the attitudes of the heart that are expressed in your words? Are you seeking husbands, wives, friends, co-workers, uh, child to parent, etc.? Because we, 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 we really hurt the people closest to us the worst, don't we, with our words? Are we seeking to bring our tongue in line with our faith? You've heard me say it before, and I'll wrap up with this. The best men I've ever known are not the best because they are smart, rich, talented, or famous. Think about it. Think about the best people you have known. You know, if I'm just completely honest, the best men I've ever known in my life It all is because of the same reoccurring characteristic in their person. What do you think it is? I mean, I I didn't make it this thing, but as I just think about it, in high school, I think about Jeb Smith. Uh, In college, I think about Kenny McKinney. Uh, After that, I think about my dear friend Tom Hamilton. And what, what reoccurs in my heart and mind about all three of those men that makes them the best of men in my days is that I never, ever, ever heard them say anything hurtful. I never heard gossip. I never heard vanity. I never heard them wrongly esteeming themselves. I never heard them bringing someone else down in order to elevate themselves. I never heard... I just... Was it there? Yeah, it probably was. I mean, we all fall in various ways. But you know what? Uh, I've told you this before, that if I were going to name my offspring after uh, another man, it would be one of those guys. Why? Because here's the deal. There is, and you know this, there is something divine about a man or a woman who can control their words. Is that right? We instinctively are attracted to the guy who resists the temptation to cut down others in order to elevate themselves, to gossip. And and by the way, I heard a preacher say this last night. Uh, When you go to gossip, if you say, now, I don't want to gossip, but that precursor, that preface does not make it not gossip. Okay? Yeah, I thought that was good. Just because you say it's not gossip, it's still gossip. You've just prefaced your gossip. Okay, you can't just say, well, man, I love him to death. But let me tell you, all right, that does not cover your sin. But there's something divine about the one who tames his tongue, isn't there? I mean, when I think about the best men in life I've known, I put them on that pedestal because I never heard anything bitter. I never heard anything negative. I never heard anything 
that lowered another or elevated themselves wrongly. There's just something divine. There's something godly and righteous. And there's something about it that just tells me that that's the way it should be. Because that is right. I assumed everything else is most likely under control. Is that right? Let's pray. Father, your word says that the mouth of the righteous is a well of life. Oh, that we become the righteous men and women you've called us to be. And not the wicked men and women that lash out, that use our weapon of poison and restless evil to slay those around us. God, we say to you that you have stolen our hearts by your love. We say you are the king of not just the world, but our world. Would you then, Father, have your way? Would you shape us into the likeness of Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, our very cornerstone? Do that in us, Father, as we stand to declare our allegiance to you, our King. Amen. Stand with us. Our King has done a good bit on our behalf. Always, always, always our prime motivation for living a righteous life is the love of our God. It is the grace of our God. It is the mercy and the forgiveness and the peace that we receive from our God that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What would cause a man to put a chokehold on his own tongue when it is such a restless evil? The only thing, the only hope is the motivation of the great love of our God. He is not only the king of the world. Understand as you sing these words, he is to be our king. He is to be our king. And because he loved us, we in turn love him. And because we love him, well, we will live according to his righteousness. And we will continually put to death the members of our flesh, as Paul said, which would include your tongue, that unruly member, so that we might be the salt and the light that this world sees and recognizes as something extraordinary, something divine, church. Is our tongue important? Is it important in here? Absolutely. It's important right here. Is it important in your home? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we could control our tongue in our marriages, we'd probably have it made. If we could control our words, if we could restrain sometimes bitterness in this family, we'd probably have it made. If you in your daily walk in life could master that one member the world would see it as something divine because it is indeed rare and it is only of God. He's our only hope. He is in us. We are in Him. As you sing this song, why don't you ask Him for help?
Amen. He wants to help us. He wants to empower us. We have now a spirit living in us that gives us the power to do what we can't do on our own. Yeah? And when you're having trouble, close the bars. Lock her down. Let's sing.